Hey, pull up a chair. Attacks on Tap with David Axelrod and Mike Murphy. Before we get into our podcast, I have an announcement to make. Mike Murphy is not here. And before everyone gets all upset, I know there's going to be conspiracy theories about him being stuffed into a DHS van because the president's a regular listener of the podcast and probably is really pissed at Murphy. Uh, Not the case. He's a good capitalist and he had a business meeting he couldn't miss is the real truth of why he's not here. But... The good news is we've got two great hackaroos in his place. Uh, we have the great Robert Gibbs, former press secretary uh, to uh, President Obama and a frequent uh, participant in this enlightening discussion. And Alex Wagner, also great, uh, of the circus <laughs> and many other also pursuits. Also a former press secretary for the Obama. No, not really. Not really, no. But just as good. Uh, And uh, we should point out, and we will again, that the circus takes up again on August 16th. As you hit the road, you say mask and hazmat suit when you're out there. Mummified in tinfoil. That's how I like to do it. (laughs) I just feel like nothing gets in. Nothing gets in if it's Reynolds wrap. Yeah. Well, it's going to be an interesting campaign to cover since everything seems to happen remotely. But... um, you, you geniuses over at Showtime will figure it out. Hey, guys, good to see you. Um, listen, this is crazy town right now, and I want to start right there. And my, my operative question for the day, and there'll be other issues we'll cover, is what the hell is the president doing uh, as a candidate running for reelection and a president in, a, uh, in the middle of a uh, pandemic? Uh, and what occasions that is everything he's saying uh, these days. Over the weekend, Deborah Burks, Dr. Deborah Burks, his uh, his chief uh, healthcare advisor, said this on CNN. We are in a new phase, and that's why I really wanted to make it a clear to the American people. It's why we started putting out governor reports directly to the health officials and the governors in every single state because we could see that each thing had to be tailored. So each state has a tailored set of recommendations based on what we're seeing at the community level, what we're seeing relevant to the hospitals. And each of these responses have to be dramatically tailored. We are beginning to see an impact from the mitigation procedures that many of the state and local officials have put into place. But I want to be very clear, what we're seeing today is different from March and April. It is extraordinarily widespread. It's into the rural as equal urban areas. And to everybody who lives in a rural area, you are not immune or protected from this virus. So there you have the president's health advisor sounding the alarm, uh, for which the president called her pathetic and accused her of knuckling under to pressure from, uh, from Nancy Pelosi. Here's what the president had to say, you guys, about uh, the uh, pandemic when he was on the Axios on HBO show last night. But here's the question. It, you know, I've covered you for a long time. I've, I've gone to your rallies. I've talked to your people. They love you. They listen to you. They listen to every word you say. They hang on your every word. They don't listen to me or the media or Fauci. They think we're fake news. They want to get their advice from you. And so when they hear you say everything's under control, don't worry about wearing masks, 
I mean, these are people, many of them are older people, What's Mr. President. What's your evidence of control? Yeah. Under the it's giving them a false sense right of security. Now, I think it's under control. I'll tell you what. How? A thousand Americans are dying a day. They are dying. That's true. And you ha it is what it is. But that doesn't mean we aren't doing everything we can. It's under control as much as you can control it. This is a horrible plague that beset us. You really think this is as much as we can control? Uh, well, a thousand I'll deaths you, a day? I'd like to know if somebody, first of all, we have done a great job. We've gotten the governors everything they needed. They didn't do their job. Many of them didn't, and some of them did. Someday we'll sit down, we'll talk about the successful ones, the good ones. Look at that smile. The good ones and the bad. We had good and bad. And we had a lot in the middle. But we had some incredible governors. I could tell you right now who the great ones are and who the not-so-great ones are. But the governors do it. Okay, guys. Why, why, uh, let me ask Robert first. You're a former press secretary. Why do these interviews? Why do these briefings? He's digging himself deeper into a hole. The polling is very clear on this. Yeah, there's no doubt about it. And I think, you know, Jonathan really hit on it throughout that interview. Jonathan Swan, give him credit. Great interview. Yeah, he, he and he, he mentioned he started the whole line of questioning off of this notion that the president is predisposed to this happy talk, this overly positive thinking. And if you go back to the very first comment he ever made on this back in January in an interview with CNBC, he said everything was under control. There's no need to talk about it. And you've seen it pollute it, the way he talks about testing. He, he fundamentally believes if we don't test and we don't talk about it, it really won't exist. He thinks he can wish this all away, convince school administrators to open schools, governors and mayors to open up the economy. We'll all pile into restaurants. Uh, and and it's, it is it is crazy because, and I know it makes some, some people on the left really mad because they watch these interviews and they say, I can't believe he gets away with this stuff. And you say, look at his vote totals among suburban voters or all voters, he's not getting away with it. You can't right. wish this away. It's the news is omnipresent. Why they do it. I, I have no yeah, idea. No, no, Alex, that's the question. I mean, he just said his new campaign management, uh, they're supposed to straighten this situation out. They're doing a big review. They pulled his media and so on, but people are seeing the man on TV and they're reading his tweets. Uh, and it seems to me that's the central problem here that is hard for a campaign manager to correct. Well, you got to remember in 2016, it was let Trump be Trump. And it is never, the playbook has really fundamentally never changed. The minute there's anyone in his orbit that dares to speak counter to what the president is doing or thinking or saying, that person is excised from the inner circle. This is a person, this is a president who believes he is always the best at the job. And if the numbers are down, it's because he hasn't been given the right platform to espouse his views. I mean, I think he can't be stopped from doing interviews like this. And I actually think uh, from that clip that you played, the most damning part of it, which is a window into how Trump thinks of this pandemic, is when he talks about the thousand dead Americans a day and says it is what it is. That's it. That's a Biden campaign ad first and foremost that you'll be seeing in Florida later this week. But it is also indicative of someone who is completely accepted as the normal course of order that a thousand Americans will lose their lives because a, a pandemic has spun wildly out of control. And the president has come to accept that. That is yeah. his new normal. How about his comment on testing? Rob, before you go, let's listen to that. I know Alex uh, flagged this one uh, and we've heard variations of this before, but it was particularly uh, 
interesting here. And, you know, there are those that say you can test too much. You do know that. Who says that? Oh, just read the manuals, read the books. Manuals? Read the books. Read the books. (laughs) What books? (laughs) I need a copy of that manual. I think we all do. I guess there's an answer key somewhere. I yeah. trust you'll have the manual before you guys go out on the road next week. I mean, it would I'd seem- be better. Clearly, it has all the answers. I, I think with Trump, it's probably a manual on tape because yeah. I don't think he's like an <laughs> avid reader. But Alex was alluding to this. I mean, in reality, there isn't a campaign manager except Donald Trump. And there isn't a press secretary except Donald Trump. And so Donald Trump can't convince Donald Trump not to do the interview. Right. And so he thinks he can talk his way through these things. He thinks he can kind of bogart his way through and just keep pressing and pressing. And it just doesn't really work. It just doesn't. Well, especially, I mean, I've said this from the beginning, I say it every week here, you cannot spin a pandemic because people are living it. So when you say we're doing a better job on testing than any, anyone else and people go and they either can't get a test or they're waiting five and six and seven days for a test, which renders the test virtually worthless. Uh, they know the truth. They're seeing stories on their local news and the national news about what's going on in their area. The people in Florida know what's going on. The people in Arizona and Texas uh, and California, they know what's going on. And he somehow thinks that he can spin it away. Uh, And I think it's just incredibly damaging uh, to him. And that's why I think the longer you've seen these briefings go on and they, and they, you know, inexplicably they, they brought them back, but the longer they've gone on, you just watched his approval rating on the virus sink ever so slowly, but consistently in a downward trajectory because people understand they're watching their friends get sick. They're hearing the news of the spread, the hospitalizations and the deaths. And then they see him and they know that those two just aren't congruent. I would also say I can see the numbers going down more because parents across this country are looking at a crossroads. Do I send my kid to school? What's going to happen when I send my kid to school if it's in-person classes? I mean, the reality of the pandemic is on their doorstep in a way that it maybe hasn't been up until this point. And you see the just chaos, the mismanagement, the fear and the sense of loss around you know, a year of education, that's something that people feel profoundly and personally and deeply, and that ties right back to how the president has managed this. You know, he may be uh, anticipating that there'll be some sort of uptick, but if he, it, uh, you know, in terms of uh, the, 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 the country improving, but if he does, he's not really speaking to his public health experts about what's going on right now. Uh, Dr. Burks said it there. The thing is out of control right now. And I don't know any public health expert who believes it's going to be markedly better by November. The CDC is talking about 175,000 deaths by the end of August. Um, and, you know, there's always been a concern about the fall with the flu season. So uh, I, I just, you know, it's bewildering as to uh, what he's doing, but it does, it does create, uh, I think an accurate sense of chaos, uh, in his administration. And, you know, it was for a long time, a lot of people would say, Hey, you know, he's kind of, kind of a jerk. Uh, I don't like his tweets. I don't like the way he behaves, but you know, the economy's good. Everything's good. 
now the cost of him is becoming more obvious to people. And it's, you know, you say, Robert, why did he pick up the briefings again? Because I think after weeks and weeks of flat out denial, someone said to him, hey, you got to show that you're concerned. You got to show you're engaged. But if you get up there and you don't look concerned and you don't look engaged, you just exacerbate your problem. And they can clearly keep him or they clearly try to keep him on a script for more than a couple of days at a time. But you see, I mean, look, I thought even in those in those first briefings that where they said he, quote, changed his tone, you know, he he, he did even in that briefing, he said this would just disappear. So he, he is constitutionally not capable of delivering news that his he constitution want to you're talking about not our constitution exactly Con- constitutionally sure. you would expect more from him if you're talking about our constitution but his constitution is a little different yes yeah. big c small c right do you think bill stepien do you think his campaign staff i ask you guys this you know the inner sanctum i mean not of trump land perhaps but just in terms of the mechanics of this after an interview like the axios interview or even after the press conference do you think there's, I'm not going to say the word contrition because I think that that's an allergy in inside the Trump White House, but do you think there is any sort of critical assessment of like, okay, like maybe you shouldn't say it is what it is again, relating to a, a thousand person death toll daily in America? I mean, is there even an avenue, do you think, at this point by which just it, maybe under the rubric of campaign strategy, they can try and talk to the president about the missteps here and how he might change his behavior? Or do you think it's just kind of sunshine and rainbows, no matter what the day's news is? I honestly don't know, Alex, and, and maybe Robert, you have more I mean, I'm not uh, that uh, acquainted with his inner sanctum right now, uh, but I think his inner sanctum starts at his left ear and ends at his right ear is the problem, <laughs> and nobody else gets in. If I were his campaign manager, I'd sit there uh, during these shows with a taser and at a strategic <laughs> moment, I would take him down uh, to, for his own self-protection. Uh, but I really don't know what they can do because we've seen this movie again and again and again. I mean, Robert, you see any, uh, I mean, I want to be fair about this from a strategist standpoint. Do you see, given the reality that COVID's going to be with us and Alex's point about schools opening and all of the angst that that in, entails. How does he how does he turn this around? Because this thing is governing the campaign right now. Right. And I, actually, to your point, Alex, I was thinking about this about two thirds of the way through the interview because you can see the shadow of uh, the press secretary. Uh, mm-hmm. And I thought to myself, like, what do you say as you walk <laughs> back to the Oval? Do you say like, wow, that was really good? <laughs> Nicely or, done, sir. You know, because and, and, I, and I think it's, it would be fascinating to know. I mean, my hunch is that you, you know, if you tell him the truth that that didn't really go well, um, he he probably doubles down and tries to do it again to show you that, in fact, it you're wrong. It did really go well. So I, I don't know. And I agree with David. I think there's... I think he thinks he can talk his way through any situation. I think he's done it for decades. And I think he thinks he can do it even to science and a pandemic. And I don't think anything will stop him from doing these interviews. And and, and fundamentally, the campaign really, I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't run well, right? There isn't a consistent Biden frame. There's, you know, they pause their advertising for a week while they, or a few days while they try to figure out what to go up with next. Uh, they, they, I think they did a smart thing there, though, because uh, they are reorienting their buy to 
uh, according to which states begin voting, which battleground states right. begin voting early. I mean, and that makes sense to me because we keep focusing right. on November 3rd, but the election really begins in mid-September and you need to, you know, that you need to orient yourself that I mean, there was some logic to that. But, um, you know, trying to sort this out, uh, you know, rearranging the deck chairs on the ship when Trump is the captain uh, right. may be, uh, you know, a uh, an, an empty uh, a pyrrhic exercise. I, I don't know. But, you know, Alex, there is one thing, one strategy that uh, he may be uh, looking to employ here, and that is around the issue of voting. Uh, because the other big kind of, I mean, the whole interview was crazy, and we saw some uh, of it again repeated at his briefing yesterday, but the issue of mail-in voting has become the great white whale for Donald Trump. Let's just listen to a little bit of what he had to say about that. But there are many cases all over the country. If you look, you'll be able to find there's a list of them all over the country. And that has to do with universal mail-in. Again, absentee is great. It works. Like in Florida, they'll do absentee. It really works. But universal mail-in ballots is going to be a great embarrassment to our country. Uh, Robert, explain uh, what uh, universal what the, the difference between absentee ballots and mail-in ballots, because I'm a little bewildered about that. If you're Donald Trump, you decided that absentee ballots are far different because that's exactly how he votes in Florida. And of course that's very okay. Um, a mail-in ballots, uh, they are, um, they're absentee ballots, man. Right. They're the same thing, of course. Absentee no, ballots are his, mail-in ballots, and yes. mail-in ballots are absentee ballots. Absolutely. He's compla his complaint is only that uh, a lot of states are mailing out uh, applications to voters around the state, and they're doing it for a damn good reason. We're in the middle of a pandemic. It was just reported the other day that a lot of states are having trouble getting poll workers to work the election because they're worried about COVID. It's clear from polling that large numbers of Americans are going to vote uh, by mail. Uh, and, uh, you know, but that is, that is the distinction. He's making a distinction without a difference. There are three states, I think, that are mailing out ballots, three or four states, uh, ballots to people, uh, but they have done that in the past. Uh, so it's not a new, there, there are states that have used mail-in voting. Well, David, if you, you know, if you talk to strategists in a place like Florida, they've spent literally tens of millions of dollars over years and years to hone their absentee ballot strategy, particularly with senior voters, um, to, you know, an art form. And when you see these pictures or these videos of people to own the libs burning their applications in, I think there was a video of somebody burning, burning applications, you know, in Michigan, it is going to depress his own turnout. Um, it's going to change his numbers. Um, and as you've always pointed out, it, it is the beginning of and the consistency of delegitimizing the outcome of the election. Um, and, it, you know, he mentions, well, you're not even going to know on election night. It may right. take months. It right. may take. Well, let's know. listen. Let's listen, Alex. Let's listen a little more to the Swan interview, uh, the Axios interview on this subject, because you really get a window into the president here. 
We went through World War One. you went to the polls, you voted. We went through World War II, you you've went had, to the polls, you voted. You've had mail-in voting since the Civil War. And now, because of the China virus, <laughs> we're supposed to stay home, send millions of ballots all over the country, millions and millions. You know, you could have a case where this election won't be decided on the evening of November 3rd. Absolutely. This election could what's be wrong decided two months later. It won't be two months, but what's wrong with the proper it mailing count? It could be count? decided many months later. Have you discussed You know why? Because people, lots of things will happen during that period of time, especially well, when you have tight margins. Lots of things can happen. So this goes to Alex. This goes to Robert's point. This is, you know, after the last election, he uh, he lost by three million votes in the popular vote. And he said that it was a result of massive fraud and paneled a commission uh, head, headed by uh, Kobach, his, 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 his pal. They found nothing. There was no evidence of massive fraud. Now he's pre-spinning the election and predicting massive fraud in anticipation, I think, of a negative result. It's amazing when you listen to him talk about it. What is so clearly the animating force is the deep and abiding paranoia of losing, right? Like he's so, you can feel viscerally like how badly he wants this to be true because it gives him a way to save face and not be a loser and or overturn the results of the election. I think, you know, it's anyone's guess how far he's going to ride this. But absolutely, like 1000% Trump's modus operandi since he got into office has been see institutions that are on the verge of atrophy and tear them down. Congress has record low approval ratings. Let's tear it all down. Our election system is problematic and full of holes insofar as Russia was able to infiltrate the way in which we elected a president instead of buffering those systems and preparing them for the next wave of elections. Let's do nothing. Let's further the atrophy. And here's the U.S. Post Office, which he is using, which which is in financial straits. Right. And he is taking that opening and um, metastasizing the cancer and in the same and and undermining the institution of free and fair elections. It's, you know, we talk about the hangover of Trumpism. He may claim that the election was unfair and still cede the White House to Joe Biden. But what will what the legacy of his four years in office will be is a, a, a deep fissure in, in this country in terms of Americans trust in the institu- in, in institu- institutions to govern us. That is a real danger, isn't it, about this election? Uh, because it's what I've said before. There are only two uh, outcomes for Trump. Either he wins or the election was stolen. There's no right. third option. And what he's saying is. Because it is true that there's going to be a lag time because ballots will come in up to Election Day and it will there will be a lag time in counting. And what he's saying is that if he is ahead on Election Day and he he could be in some of these states in better shape on Election Day because a lot of his people are believing that they shouldn't vote by mail right now. It's driving Republicans nuts. But one of the effects of that may be that he gets a better count on Election Day than he ultimately receives when the mail-in ballots, which will be more heavily skewed Democrat, uh, come in. And he's going to contend, as you know, as surely as we're sitting here, that those ballots were fraudulent ballots. So we're going to spend months about with this and there'll be no transition and there'll be, you know, the effect you worry about. The, the, The people that really need to be asked about this are at the state level and in the Republican Party, right? Because Trump has his own interests that begin and end with Donald Trump. The Republican Party 
presumably has an interest in a free and fair election um, because it could serve to, you know, benefit them one day in the future. I'm not quite sure when, but at some point. And they're the ones that are going to be left, you know, they're the people that are going to have to manage this at the state level and in Congress. And every single Republican senator should be asked about the president's comments on this in advance of the election. It was interesting, Robert, to hear Asa Hutchinson, the governor of Arkansas, on the air this weekend saying, you know, we, 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 we're prepared for mail-in ballots. We can handle mail-in ballots. There's a real divide within the Republican Party. A lot of Republicans are nervous that Trump is driving their voters away from using mail-in ballots. And some of them, particularly the older ones, are going to be reluctant to to vote at all. Well, and you think about it, I mean, the election, I, I don't know which states, I don't have the map in front of me, but you know, not only do you have presidential elections, but a lot of these states, you've got legislative, state legislative elections that are going to decide how to draw the lines for reapportionment to the next, uh, yeah. using the census to determine uh, what Congress looks like. I mean, th- there are, as you said, state elected officials, governors, mayors that are that are deeply concerned about uh, this prospect of watching this vote not accumulate because Donald Trump's literally talking his voters out of participating in this election in, in, a, in a way that's safe and healthy for them. Okay, then let's take a break right here and we'll be right back. You know, Kips, every once in a while uh, on Twitter, people will write in and say, Axe, you make me nauseous. But nausea is nothing to joke about. It's like getting stuck in the back of a car and you're kind of a little bit hemmed in and you just you get that feeling and it starts in your stomach. It's not. Yeah. A good and, and, and like you're on your way to something good, a, a celebration or party or something. And now you're nauseous and you can't get rid of it, except there is an answer now. And it's called Relief Band. Tell us about Relief Band. Relief Band is the number one FDA-cleared anti-nausea wristband that has been clinically proven to quickly relieve and effectively prevent nausea and vomiting associated with motion sickness, anxiety, migraines, hangovers, morning sickness, chemotherapy, and so much more. The product is 100% drug-free, non-drowsy, and provides all-natural relief with zero side effects, zero for as long as needed. The technology was originally developed over 20 years ago in hospitals to relieve nausea from patients, but now through Relief Band, it's available to all of us. Here's how it works with Relief Band. It stimulates a nerve in the wrist that travels to the part of the brain that controls nausea. Then it blocks the signal your brain is sending to your stomach telling you that you're sick. Relief Band is the only over-the-counter wearable device that has been used in hospitals and oncology clinics to treat nausea and vomiting. If you know somebody who deals with nausea, Relief Band makes a great gift. I'm telling you, Relief Band works. We know from our own experience, we sent one to our engineer who often gets nauseous during our shows, and he reports 100% cure. Don't fall for those cheap bands you see in drugstores or on your Instagram feed. All right. Right now, Relief Band has an exclusive offer just for our Hacks listeners. If you go to reliefband.com and use promo code HACKS, you'll receive 20% off plus free shipping and a no questions asked 30-day money-back guarantee. So head to reliefband, R-E-L-I-E-F-B-A-N-D, com and use our promo code HACKS for 20% off plus free shipping.
Alex, you mentioned the post office. The president was talking about the post office yesterday at his briefing. Let's just take a, a listen to that. And by the way, I have to say, the post office for many, many years has been, you know, run in a fashion that hasn't been great. Great workers and everything, but they have old equipment, very old equipment. And I don't think the post office is prepared for a thing like this. You have to ask the people at the post office. Now, the post office, uh, the Postal Service spokespeople said yesterday they were prepared for the election. But if you talk to folks, Democrats, uh, you know, people in Biden land and so on, there is a concern about uh, whether the post office uh, can handle it. And so much so that they are really planning to emphasize early voting, going to polling places early and voting when the polling places are not cluttered. They're certainly going to push people to get their ballots in early because their concern isn't about fraud. Their concern is just about ballots arriving late and not being counted. And so uh, this, 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 this poses headaches for Biden as well. Well, we have to just get, dig into the nefarious nature of this a little bit. Like yes. the Postmaster General is a Trump appointee. They've decided to not pay postal workers. Yes, a big donor, big donor. Exactly. They've decided to not pay postal workers overtime right. at a, precisely the moment when there are tons of packages and lots of mail and an upcoming election that's predicted to have a record number of mail-in ballots. I mean, this is starving an institution when it when it you know it it it's most in need of resources. Austerity, Alex. It's it's fiscal yeah. responsibility. You know that. And and putting people at risk. You know, these are essential workers who are going to be critical components of uh, a transparent and free election. So the darkness, the 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 lengths to which they are apparently willing to go to try and gum up the works and the lives they're willing to put at risk and the democracy that they're willing to put on the line is, I mean, we shouldn't, we should not shy away from noting how shocking that is. I know everything's shocking in this day and age, but, um, yeah, there's nothing more fundamental as you point out than the franchise of voting. I mean, that's kind of, that's the touchstone of all democracy. And if people don't have confidence in that process, um, it undermines everything else. And how about sitting there in the White House, right? The beacon of democracy. You're the president of the United States. You're less than 100 days before an election, and you're surmising that a federal agency doesn't have what it needs yes. to conduct an election. Exactly. And yet yeah. you never say to yourself, well, geez, you know what we're going to do? We're going to give them the funding they need to make sure that every citizen gets to choose their representative. I mean, it never even enters his lexicon. It's it's remarkable. Not not to mention funding for the states to upgrade right. their systems so that they can count faster when these ballots come in. He says he's worried about the speed of the count. Uh, there are bills in Congress that are uh, designed to uh, augment and, and and support states. I mean that this is part of the the debate over the the uh, relief bill right now. Before that, uh, Pelosi and uh, McConnell are, are are or I guess Pelosi and the White House are and they're and the Republicans have been resistant about adding yeah. money for the states. You're absolutely right. If the president were really worried about the integrity of the election, uh, he would be doing things to uh, increase confidence. Uh, and increased capacity. Uh, but instead, he's spending his time uh, sowing doubt about the election, which gives you a sense of how he feels he's going to do in the election. Dave, you mentioned what does this mean for Biden? I mean, there are people that have surmised. Dave Wasserman 
at the Cook Political right. Report, um, you know, who has talked about the fact that that uh, that because uh, of all the things that you have to get right on a mail-in ballot for the ballot to actually go through the process and be counted, that there is a concern. Um, he, he says there should be a concern on the Democratic side that you could get, say, five to eight percent of ballots that don't meet all of these standards and could get thrown out. So I, I do think there, if you're on the Biden campaign um, and you're in the Democratic Party right now in that apparatus, you have to be spending time, energy, and money making sure that people understand this process. You can't depend on Trump un- helping people understand and that process. And one of the things he pointed out then, the, and the Biden folks uh, talk about is, you know, in a lot of states, there's a process by which if you haven't, because there are a lot of precautions that we, we should point out, we haven't said flatly, there's an infinitesimal, uh, you know, uh, incidence of, of fraud in mail balloting that that's been going on uh, as uh, swan pointed out to the president since the civil war the military has been voting since then uh by mail we have uh we have five states uh and three entirely have been voting by mail for some time there's no uh but one of the one of the one of the one of the safeguards is if you, for example, need someone to sign, co-sign your ballot, or if there are other, is other information needed and you don't have it, they can send it back to you to, to fix it, to cure it. Uh, and if the, but if the mail is slow, if the mail yeah. isn't functioning, uh, a lot of those ballots will go by the wayside. Well, and that's already happened, like a large number from recent elections, you know, the mail-in votes that had postage paid, some of those envelopes didn't make it past the sort of mail sorting uh, hurdle and got disqualified. And the Biden team needs to worry about the Project Veritas of the world, third-party conservative groups that are going to go out there and make sure to find incidences of voter fraud to say, look, my, you know, the president pointed this out in one of his interviews, look, my, my, my grandfather died seven years ago and here's his Here's his mail-in ballot. What's to say that I can't fill this out on behalf of him? I mean, they are going to try and find the vanishingly small evidence or create it. And then you can see the Fox News media machine firing up in the days leading into the election where they say these undocumented immigrants could vote and this dead person can vote and even this someone's dog could vote. I mean, the president has almost laid it out in the interviews that he's given. And now it's up to his foot soldiers in the field to deliver on sort of the promises he's made around voter fraud. If I were Biden, I would, you know, they need to think ahead because that's the kind of stuff, you know, that's the stuff that goes viral. That's the stuff that people point out in the right wing echo chambers. And that is what does lasting damage to the election on whole, I think. Okay, then let's take a break right here and we'll be right back. Robert, you said Trump is sitting in the White House and what he is and isn't doing. Biden's been sitting in Wilmington and hasn't really had to do a whole hell of a lot. I think they've been very strategic about when to bring him out and when he does hits. But basically, their strategy has been to allow Trump the stage and they've benefited from it. Uh, but that that th- now that's going to change, uh, right, because we've got a convention coming up and we've got the, in the near term because the calendar demands it, a vice presidential uh, choice. Um, how, what, what are the, 
what are the strategic imperatives for Biden um, in the next few weeks through this VP choice and the convention? And how much do you think he has to, how much more exposed do you think he has to be, um, you know, after this juncture? Well, uh, lots of questions. So let me try to, I, I think one, you know, and as we've talked about this before, I mean, I think the vice presidential selection is the most presidential decision a presidential candidate makes, right? It, it, there's, you go through lots of research, you go through lots of um, scenarios, you think, you know, you, you, you come up with this selection. And I think that selection is going to have to pass the test of being, can people in this country see her, because we know it's going to be a woman, do they see her as capable of being president and commander in chief, right? That, that is the biggest, most important job he has. The convention, I think, for him is truly important as well, because I, I think as much as, as people have seen and covered Joe Biden politically, I don't know that people know a whole lot about who he is and what his values are and kind of what makes him tick. And so I think introducing himself to the country in a broader, better way through surrogates as well as through his speech uh, is is imperative. And we may not see we may not see these convention bounces that people talk about, but it, it will go a long way into making people feel comfortable about who he is and what he wants to do. And I think that's truly imperative. And, and I think there's no doubt that once we hit, you've got both of these conventions, the sort of two weeks, sort of the last two weeks in August. And then I think there's no doubt that by Labor Day, this thing is going to be joined um, pretty ferociously in the sense that this will be a much more dominating story of the day. Um, it's been hard to break through with coronavirus right now and hard to break through with uh, uh racial injustice. But I, I think as we get closer and closer, and it's going to it's going to require that Biden um, be out there and be present more. I think that campaign, the Biden campaign knows that. Um, no need to get onto that stage before they need to. Uh, I think they've been smart and strategic in that way. But I think they're about to have to step into the batter's box more regularly uh, and 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 hit the ball. Alex, you're you, I know you're a brilliant writer for The Atlantic. Uh, oh, and an author. David, thanks for that. But uh, you can't escape the fact that you're also a TV person. Uh, yeah, I can't. And uh, <laughs> I mean, what do you... Uh, uh, first, I, I want to talk about the VP thing um, in more detail in a second. But on the convention, um, it's interesting to me, you know, I'm of the mind that this could be a great advance in political conventions, which are such anachronisms. And, totally. And now they're going to produce Democrats, at least, are producing, you know, several nights of TV and the networks who have no original content because they couldn't produce any are, are going to run it. Yeah. Um, I mean, is it possible that this could work? I mean, work out better for Biden? Yes. I, I actually think you are speaking truth here. I think this is the silver lining of all of this. Like the Democrats have been planning. First of all, they have an advantage because Trump has thrown the RNC into such chaos. They just haven't had the time to plan a television spectacular the way that the Democrats have with the with the, with the sure hand of Stephanie Cutter guiding the captain's wheel. Yes. Someone you guys worked with in yeah. the Obama White House. You know, they know what they're doing. Do you remember a, a Man from Hope, the famous yeah. uh, convention documentary? Yeah, uh, Clinton in 92. Bill Clinton. 
that they are going to do one of those for Joe Biden, who's a much more known figure, but has a fantastic cast of surrogates. And I will say something, the unity that Democrats and certain moderate Republicans are feeling around Joe Biden, the sort of goodwill and the sort of party establishment and among the centrist uh, wing of the Republican Party and the desire to get him into the White House, I think, you know, they are going to have, a, I think, a good display um, for the American public in prime time. And I think, you know, it may be an exciting thing to be a convention delegate, but we've all watched convention footage on the television. It is it is not sweeps material no. to put it in TV terms, no, but- right? This could be a huge boon. And, it, and they will also do something that I think is super important in this moment and speaks to Robert's point, which is show the American public how to do it responsibly. Show them how you can have something that that brings the country together but doesn't put anybody in harm, harm's way. Show them how you are going to be doing routine testing. Show them how you're going to be transparent about how people are keeping safe, social distancing. Show the country a model for what the twilight zone where you have a responsible president in office. Show them that. I, I think that I think that will be. But let me ask you about something you said. You said uh, that the Democrats have extraordinary unity right now, which no one would have predicted necessarily no. in January. As, as it relates to the getting Trump out of office and Biden in office. That's all. There, there are plenty of f- fractures within the party beyond that. Is that unity uh, jeopardized at all by this vice presidential choice? Because by definition, you're going to please some people and you're going to disappoint other people. And if that and if that's a concern given that everything seems to be going well is robert says the premium is on picking someone who can do the job and i think that's going to be really important with a guy who's 78 years old and who probably isn't going to be running in 2024 for sure um but it, there's also probably a don't rock the boat uh mentality with your choice and if if that's true where does it lead them well look i think you can't pick someone who's going to make everybody happy, but the fact that we have a short list that's comprised of women and women of color is, you know, I mean, that's going to, that's a, that's a big step forward for the Democratic Party. And I think the progressive base is, you know, the tension between the centrists from the Republican Party that Biden would like to bring along in key swing states and placating the progressive base of the party. That's the fundamental tension. The fact that we're already in a, in a small conversation with, let's say, three candidates, all of whom are um, African-American women, that is, you know, that shows that. Is Biden's that your assumption? Is that of, your assumption? That I this think so. Is, yeah, so you're think thinking so. Susan Rice, Kamala Harris and, and Karen Bass are those the three? Karen Bass. Yeah. But I think, I mean, I still think I've said this before. I think Kamala is probably still the front runner and all that. And we can unpack that. But I do want to say there may be grousing within the Repub- the Democratic Party about the candidate. I'm sure there will be in certain circles. Never underestimate the swiftness and the ferocity of the Republican attack machine, which will come swooping in on angels' wings the minute this woman's name is announced. And if Democrats are bickering amongst themselves, the, the, the negativity of those attacks, Donald Trump is going to open fire on this person, as will his campaign apparatus. That, I think, in in a way, could serve as a unifying force for Democrats who don't want to see their VP torn to shreds. Robert, if if Brother Murphy were here, this would be the point where he'd make his obligatory pitch for Gina Raimondo, a fine governor yeah. from uh, uh, from Rhode Island. But he'd also argue that, you know, the suburban vote is the pivotal vote in this election. And that's what Biden should be thinking about. Uh, when he's in fact, we took a lot of incoming Alex. You weren't here 
last week. Your 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 buddy John Heilman was here. That's why you took here. the incoming. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that that's probably right. We needed we needed protection, <laughs> but uh, uh, from Kamala supporters who are angry uh, at the suggestion that you know. Biden also needs to think about partnership for the next four years, and you don't want to pick someone who necessarily is going to be running for president from Jump Street, and Murphy suggested she might be that. You do need someone who's going to be running for president. Joe Biden's not going to be running for president in 2024. You need someone who's going to be ready to run for president in 2024. I just completely disagree with the... It is true that you need somebody who's going to be able to run and ready to run for president, but you don't want someone who makes that their primary focus from the moment you get there. But you need someone who's going to be an executive and show executive leadership right. early on because Joe Biden is not going to, first of all, he's going to be walking into a hornet's nest. Right. He's going to be working into a, an economy in free fall, a deeply divided country, a raging pandemic. The whole country may have to shut and, down again. And global relationships sundered. Exactly. Yeah. You need someone who is going to be very comfortable taking an executive role. Right. Right. Yeah, you you absolutely do. I mean, I think you, and look, th- this got sort of sideways when they had some donor spoke to to a media outlet and said, you know, you don't want somebody who's overly ambitious. And, and let's, first of all, let's just put that at rest. Nobody gets to this point without being ambitious. Okay. This isn't like, you know, they appointed George Washington to the job and they've elected everyone since. So it, it, we can dispense with this idea of ambition. I do think you have to be, um, somewhat careful that, you know, the Oval Office and the Vice President's Office are connected by that hallway that goes past the Chief of Staff's office. And you you, you don't want to look down that hallway and think that the any advice that you're getting is coming from somebody who's worried about their political future and not the president's political future first. And that was a, that was a, and you know, that was a strength of Biden's. I mean, absolutely. You know, Biden. Absolutely. I, my view is that Biden is going to balance long and short term here. And I think quite naturally, knowing more about the job than anyone else, he's going to look for someone who had some of the qualities that he brought, which was loyalty in in public, unflinching loyalty in public, unremitting candor and valuable counsel in private, uh, the ability to take over large projects, as you say, Alex, to take some of the load off of him and uh, the ability to become president if necessary, which is going to be more important in this instance than perhaps at any time in the past, maybe since uh, Roosevelt appointed uh, Harry Truman in 1944. Um, But, uh, you know, so I think that is going to be an issue. Alex, though, you, you look like you were on the edge of your seat there. Oh, did I? I think that that was just me listening to you. Um, I don't know. I mean, I think I look, I don't disagree with anything you guys are saying, but I don't know in this moment when Joe, I guess, let me, let me try and say this in the most artful way possible. Joe Biden was everybody's second choice. He was basically nobody's first choice. And I think to some degree, there's an understanding of that. And while if this was Barack Obama, who was a lot of people's first choice, that would allow him the bandwidth to choose someone that he felt comfortable with that who was going to best serve his interests. I think there's in this moment an understanding that because Biden isn't a lot of people's first choice, he doesn't get to choose someone that serves him best. He's got to choose someone that maybe serves the party and its interests best. Well, the question is that that's what that that's what you say everybody's understanding is the question is whether that's Biden's understanding. Well, sure. That's also true. I mean, I, look, I don't think he's made the decision yet. No, I don't think so either. And I think even as we speak, he's he's beginning this week to talk to, you know, uh, I mean, everybody says, well, we'll have a, 
a decision within days. I expect we won't have a decision until shortly before the convention. And he, the we convention, shouldn't, frankly. Yeah. He should. This is an important decision. He should take his time and and uh, and ruminate about it. Uh, one of the questions is: Does it really? How much does it matter, really? I mean, will people come to the polls or not come to the polls based on who the vice presidential candidate is? No. The 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 again, there's one test, right? And we'll call it the Sarah Palin test. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure she loves being used in this. Uh, for, I, know, to, I know. Politicians like to have stuff named after them, but not this. <laughs> in, in fairness to her, she never should have been put in this situation, right? The, 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 the staff on that McCain campaign never should have put her in this position. But if they, if you're not capable of convincing people that you're able to take over the job, should something happen to the president, that that is the really the only test here. I think we, I think there is a series of campaign folklore um, that you you need a certain pick from a certain state with a certain view and a certain this and a certain that, and in reality. It is likely based on the way this campaign will be executed that we'll actually see the vice presidential candidate less than we ever, ever have before, right? There aren't going to be rallies where this person is going to be the pit bull attack dog. We're going to see uh, the introduction uh, of this candidate. We're going to see a vice presidential debate, uh, and we're going to see a lot of pictures on Zoom. So, you know, we, we've talked about, you know, Susan Rice, people said, well, She's never been a candidate. She's never run a campaign. You know, she's she's never been out on the stump. Well, in reality, she doesn't really need to be out on the stump. So I, I think this I think we get overblown as to what what happens and why do people get picked. And I I do think it is I think Biden needs to have somebody that he feels comfortable with. I think Biden Joe Biden is looking for his Joe Biden. Somebody who, as you said, David, can be who who can argue with him in private. Uh, be the last person that talks to him before he makes a big decision, uh, and 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 relentless in support in public, um, and I think that's, I think I, I do think there is a tension. I think what Alex pointed out is is true, um, and I think that is a, a wrestling match that's probably going on a little bit within the campaign, but probably more so inside of Joe Biden right now, as he starts the interviewing process and 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 then ultimately makes what again will be an enormously important selection because I go back to Sarah Palin. It, it, it doesn't nest. It doesn't just look poorly on Sarah Palin that she wasn't capable of answering that test. It looked poorly on John McCain for having picked him. And there is something of a comparison because at that point, McCain was 73. He had been through melanoma. There was concerns right. about him. And so people were looking at her as a potential, you know, as a potential. Um, so there is that, um, there is that comparison. La- last thing on this, Alex, because there, there, when people heard you were going to be on today, the mailbag just mm. bulged with, oh with my God. inquiries with hate mail uh, with inquiries. <laughs> uh, so, um, but um, the issue you you say that you think that the finalists are, are are those three, and that implies that you think that Biden really has to must appoint an African American candidate. Um, is that, am I reading that right? Yeah. I, I don't think there's really any way you can have an all white ticket in this moment. I mean, I think that that's more, I mean, that's really a, 
I, I could look, I've been t- completely wrong before, but I just think in this moment where we're at, where the country's at, what message you need to send to both Americans and the globe, you know, and also I think in, in a lot of ways, the hope it would signal that, you know, a lot of people looked at the election of Donald Trump after the election of Barack Obama and said, was it real to have the first female person of color in the vice president's office would be a huge step forward for humanity, for the country, for the Democratic Party. I think he understands the magnitude of that coming in this particular moment. So yeah, I just, I think it's going to be a woman of color. Okay. That's a, that's a prediction. We've got it. Happily, we're just talking among ourselves and no one will ever know whether you're right or or not. Call me when I'm wrong and I'll, I'll eat my shoe. I'll eat my shoe or whatever (laughs) it is that I'm supposed to do. Okay. Let's take a break right here for a word from our sponsor and we'll be right back. Little homage to Mike Murphy there. Okay. Um, Alex, I didn't know you could sing that well. <laughs> I, I've been practicing. I've been taking voice lessons during the pandemic. Fantastic. I, I to do something constructive. It, yeah. it really yeah. comes through. It that does. Phenomenal. Yeah. yeah, but I'm, I'm not sure that the band fits into the social distancing thing, but that's a, that's a different question. They wear masks. <laughs> they wear masks. So, Robert, here is a question for you as a veteran of presidential politics and media manipulation. Do the presidential candidates float VP candidates to test drive them for press reaction before the final selection? Or is this just an exercise the pundits use to fill airtime, of which there's plenty in a campaign where nobody goes anywhere? That's my parenthetical addition. But You added to Patrick's question. I did. I, I, I don't know that they float candidates as much as, um, look, I, I think as, as we've talked about, there's probably 20 or so candidates that have already been floated. And I definitely think that the campaign watches to see the reaction, whether it's from interest groups, whether it's from the press. Um, you know, you see this right now. I, I mean, I think there's no doubt that you have certain camps that are dropping opposition research on no other doubt. candidates. Uh, you know, Karen Bass had to answer a question about appearing at a Scientology uh, at a, at a, a church uh, 10 years ago. And I, I have no doubt that that got popped by somebody, not likely the Biden campaign. But look, everything you go through in this process is is part of this test. Um, again, whether it's from the campaign, whether it's from other uh, other entities, um, to see how these candidates react. How do they answer the question? There is no perfect presidential candidate. There's no perfect vice presidential candidate. They're going to have to answer for some action or some comment. And watching them do that gives in this case, Joe Biden, a good sense of understanding how do they react in this cauldron uh, when they get selected. Everything is a vetting, you know, a public vetting, a private vetting. You see candidates uh, booking themselves on, uh, uh, you mentioned Karen Bass, she was on uh, Meet the Press and she went on Fox News Sunday knowing she was going to get these questions because she obviously felt she wanted to show she could handle those questions. Um, I should point out she's doing the Axe Files must stop uh, podcast uh, later today as well. So you know she's serious about this. Um, there goes her chance. Yeah. But, um, you know, I, I don't think that the campaign necess- that necessarily wants to um, kind of air all of this in public because one of the things that they want is, to, is the element of surprise when they make their final pick. They want to announce it. They want to announce it on their own terms. They don't necessarily want the candidate lobbied. Um, so this is more a natural function of the process 
and of candidates, uh, I think, as you point out, kind of beating each other up behind the scenes uh, to try and get an, uh, an upper hand. But um, that will all of this speculation will end shortly. I love this part of the program where not our program, but the the campaign program where everybody is obsessed about who that candidate's going to be. And we're going to know, right, like in a week or something. So everybody calm down. We're not good at waiting, David. No, I, we're not good at waiting, as the last six months have showed you. <laughs> we can't wait. We're not good at patience. <laughs> yes. Well, you'll have to be. Robert, I think Caleb had a question for Alex. It has seemed to me that Senator Tom Cotton has been intending to run for president in 2024 for some time. However, he has a, a history of right-wing dialogue, such as when he recently said that slavery was a, quote, necessary evil, end quote. My question is, why say things now that your opponents could use against you in the future? Even if Trump's conservative rhetoric gets him reelected this year, would the American people be willing to go 12 years with a president that says this type of stuff? Caleb, let me tell you, if Trump's conservative rhetoric gets him reelected this year, you better bet your bottom <laughs> dollar that people are going to be saying this stuff for another 12 years. I mean, I think Tom Cotton understands the fundamental truth of where the Republican Party base is at. And it's, you know, there are there's a lot of racial animus. There's a lot of xenophobia. This is the kind of stuff that that keeps the bread and butter, deep red conservative voters on your side. And that's, you know, especially in the beginning of any presidential election cycle, you, you start out probably further down the field, left or right, than you end up if you make it to the general, right? There's always a pivot. The other thing is I think the Trump years have shown us that you can say a lot of shit and nobody is going to check you on it. I mean, there is, we have become so assaulted with disqualifying statements on the half, on the behalf of, on, on behalf of this president. You'd think he wouldn't have even made it this far and yet he has. And I think, um, if anything, there's a reward for people who um, predicate their public personages on bombast. And um, Tom Cotton's making a name for himself. Yeah. He's a senator yeah. and we're talking about him because he's publishing controversial op-eds. He's saying controversial things and he wears his ambition on his sleeve. And he's going to be in a dogfight with another senator named Josh Hawley. Yeah. <laughs> you can see the crop of... 2024 candidates in uh, the Republican Party. The question now is, to what degree do they walk back some of their more incendiary statements if Trump is loses? And to what degree do they double down on them if he wins? I mean, but the idea that they won't say them from now until Election Day, I think, is a fantasy. Yeah, listen, Tom Cotton is nothing if not a shrewd uh, politician. And he has made an assessment of the Republican Party and, you know, the Republican Party may not be a majority of the country, but the Trump Republican is a majority of the Republican Party right now. And it's likely that that base is going to be active, uh, whether Trump wins or not. And so, you know, Cotton is uh, pitching for that base. And these controversies that he stirred, including that uh, controversial op-ed that he wrote in The New York Times and frankly, the reaction that it engendered from people at the times only probably enhanced his desirability uh, to the Trump base. I mean, these things are all done with, yeah. with that in mind. So I, uh, I think he knows what he's doing and he's reading the party. And the question really is whether there is another base within the Republican Party that has the wherewithal to fight back if Trump goes to defeat 
this year, number one. And number two, what will Trump do and will he uh, mount it? It seems like he's getting ready to take over OAN if this doesn't work out for him and sort of become the voice of the resistance. And who will he favor? Um, if not himself, he'll be, you know, let's assume that's not the case, but it could be his, one of his kids. It could be one of these other people. We'll, we'll see. I would just add to that, David, that Tom Cotton's strategy has proven so effective that Donald Trump is dedicating one night of the Republican convention to cancel culture. Like, yeah. did that stuff work for him? You betcha. Yeah. David <laughs> Axelrod, this question in from a listener named, coincidentally, Dave, <laughs> not going to comment on that. Just a strange coincidence. <laughs> what role will surrogates play leading up to the election this fall? It seems like Biden will have a plethora of surrogates, but with Trump's unpopularity and Republicans looking to 2024, they won't want to be out defending him. David? It's really interesting. First of all, it's not like Trump invites a lot of surrogates. You know, Trump believes that, uh, you know, when he's calling plays, it's Trump left Trump right and Trump up the middle. He calls his number on every play. So he's not he's counting on himself. Uh, and what will be interesting is to see how many Republicans do uh, put their hands up. Uh, I mean, I looking and I think I said this last week, I'm, I'm wondering when Republicans who are running for other offices start saying, you know, uh, Trump's right about Biden. He's a, a, a radical left guy. And you need me. You need me to help stop him from doing these awful things to the country. And that'll be a signal that they are uh, they are looking uh, uh, to the future without Donald Trump. Uh, but in terms of Biden, you know, he I think this is an enormous advantage for him. First of all, he has President Obama, who's the most popular uh, politician uh, in the country. I think there's a you know, I think he will be out there. You don't want to be you don't want to be upstaged by him. And that's always a danger. But I think they'll use him uh, strategically, but there are so many Democrats who are eager to uh, go out and do things uh, for Biden, and that will take some of the load off of him, frankly, uh, and it will be advantageous to him uh, in terms of uh, focusing on the things he needs to focus on most readily, the debates, uh, which could be decisive in terms of sealing a victory or, or, or opening the door to Trump uh, again. So, yeah, Surrogate advantage goes to Biden. Guys, we should, uh, before we leave, there are some last call items we want to deal with. Last call. It's not nearly as entertaining as Alex singing. Yeah, well, that's Robert. <laughs> Your projection isn't as good. That's the problem. You really need to, like, Get to the end of the bar. Get to the end of the bar. Get your voice to the end of the bar. Murphy would be outraged if we didn't use the sound effects. So, um, so we check check the box there, Mike. I want to play one last clip from uh, that um, interesting Axios interview with Trump last night. This one about the late Congressman John Lewis, who was laid to rest last week. John Lewis is lying in state in the U.S. Capitol. How do you think history will remember John Lewis? I don't know. I really don't know. Uh, I don't know. Uh, I don't know John Lewis. Uh, he chose not to come to my uh, uh, inauguration. Uh, he chose... Uh, I, I don't... Uh, I never met John Lewis, actually. I don't believe. Do you find him impressive? Uh, I can't say one way or the other. I find a lot of people impressive. I find many people not impressive. But, no, but I didn't go... Do you find his story he impressive? Come, he didn't come to my inauguration. He didn't come to my State of the Union speeches. And that's okay. That's his right. And 
Again, nobody has done more right. for the, the, black a, Americans than I have. I understand. He should have come. I think he made a big mistake. I think he should have come. Taking your relationship with him out of it, do you find his story impressive, what he's done for uh, this country? He was a person that devoted a lot of energy and a lot of heart to civil rights, but there were many others also. It, it was such an insight into Trump that he could not comment about John Lewis uh, without beginning with the fact that John Lewis didn't attend his inauguration. And the thing that struck me when I heard it was, you know, John Lewis didn't attend George W. Bush's inauguration either. And George W. Bush eulogized John Lewis at his funeral last week. Uh, and that uh, speaks to how each man saw their roles as president of the United States. Uh, and, you know, Trump just has an incapacity uh, to to be big, to to uh, to look beyond a slight, uh, to 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 work with people, um, and you know it, it it's just it was kind of it was appalling but not surprising to hear his answer there. But let us say one more time uh, a farewell to John Lewis, one of the truly great figures of the last half century in this country, and one of the nicest people. Uh, that I've ever known, and certainly one of the most courageous. Alex, you have some business to do as well. Oh, God. I'm not going to eulogize the great John Lewis. I just have some, a little bit of political housekeeping. I, although I do, I will say, as a segue, I do remember the last time I saw John Lewis, and, you know, he wasn't in great, great health, but you talk about the aura of sort of magnificence and courage and resilience yeah. and bravery. And that was just, you know, even when you saw him in the hallways of Congress, if you saw him at a, an event as I did in Florida last election season, it was, you know, he was a lion. And I think the former President Obama is right. When we talk about our founding fathers, he will be seen as a contemporary founding father. Um and I am looking forward to having going to more events in Florida, though not, unfortunately, with John Lewis, and more events in Michigan and Pennsylvania and Ohio and Wisconsin and across these great United States, mummified in tinfoil, because the circus is coming back. And you won't see our faces because we'll be completely clad in PVC and goggles. But you should just know we will be there on your television screens in locations around the country covering this goddamn <laughs> dogfight of an election until the very last ballot is counted, whenever that be, may be, in whatever December year, or January. In, in 2027, <laughs> when we finally know the results. And I will be calling you guys for sage wisdom and advice and tuning in until that day comes. Well, first of all, you got to come back here, but our, the main sage uh, advice you've already obviously embraced, which is wear the damn mask. Uh, be careful out there. Robert Gibbs, what's on your mind? You know, I'll, I'll build off of what you talked about with John Lewis because, you know, he was a congressman from Georgia, but um, I was always enormously proud to be from the same state he was. He grew up in uh, Troy, Alabama, and I'd gotten a chance to meet him many times. Um, and if you haven't already seen it, uh, there's two things you should watch. Uh, watch the the recent documentary, Good Trouble. It's really good. And, and, and I will say this, and even better, I think, I, I watch them fairly close to each other, both great, but PBS's Freedom Riders uh, documentary from, I think, 2011 is 
remarkable in you get you really feel like you were there when these young kids are making the decision to get in a bus and drive through the South and test um, the laws around segregation. And it is, um, it is harrowing and it is amazing. And um, a friend of ours, David uh, John Anzalone um, Mm -hmm. went to uh, see uh, Congressman Lewis lying in state in um, in the Capitol in Alabama and took a picture because right outside of the entrance to where he laid was there's a, a, a marker in the marble there. And that's where Jefferson Davis took the oath of office for the Confederacy. Hmm. And you can stand on those steps in that Alabama Capitol and see the Dexter Avenue Baptist Church where King preached. You can see the white the first White House of the Confederacy and um John Lewis was a, a remarkable figure, and this country owes him a, a a debt that it could never repay. And uh, we are all blessed to have had him here to help us make a more perfect union. So says a son of the South, and we all agree, and uh, also agree, great to be with you guys. Murphy will be back next week. We'll see you guys soon. Be safe out there. And we'll talk to you later. Thanks, David. Bye, guys.